0: Well, all of human history uh, can be described as a narrative about the conflict that exists between the kingdom that God is building and the kingdom that is being built by the powers of darkness. Uh, The fact of the matter is that if you are joined to Christ today, you are enlisted to fight in this cosmic spiritual conflict Uh, We're not in the eternal state. Uh, We're not yet in paradise. Uh, The kingdom has not yet been consummated on the earth. Uh, The kingdom is actually in a state of war. Or, as uh, C.S. Lewis put it, um, we're in enemy occupied territory. And the rightful king is calling us to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. I've titled my sermon. Standing strong in the battle. Standing strong in the battle. And our passage is in Ephesians 6. And it's a familiar passage. I still want you to have it in front of you. There's attention I want to draw to different parts. And it will be most helpful if you have it opened. It's a passage about spiritual warfare. And as I've said, I am aware it's very familiar especially to those who have been in the church for a long time. Many of us can even recite the different pieces of armor mentioned, and we've seen posters of the Roman soldier and and all of this. As with any familiar passage, in my awareness of that, my aim is to try recapturing a fresh look at what the verses are teaching, and if possible, to make deeper observations and even connections. Uh, Many know that this passage deals with the theme of battle. But what is often less emphasized in this passage is the goal that the Apostle Paul has in mind in writing it. I don't know what you might think the goal is in this passage, just from memory. Uh, You might say the goal is to fight better. You might say the goal is to wage warfare. I'm going to propose to you that the goal in this passage is to stand strong. I initially thought of titles for the sermon such as fighting in the battle or um, advancing in the battle. And the more I looked at it over time, the more I see that although these themes are true in warfare, actually in this particular passage, those aren't the primary emphasis. Uh, Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians concerns how the Ephesian believers will stand. And there's even a verse that says that having done all, the goal is to stand. The battle is a given. It's happening. Even the advancement of the kingdom is a given because Jesus promised, I will build my church. But there is a variable. The variable For all of us to consider personally is in the midst of that battle and in the midst of kingdom advancement, will you be standing? Will you stand? Sometimes I hear the expression that people use when they're greeting each other. uh, How goes the battle? Even unbelievers use this. It's it's an idiomatic way of saying, how are you doing? Like to your friend. Sort of highlighting that life is a battle. Perhaps, after I was thinking about this, uh, perhaps what also needs to be asked is how goes your standing? Uh, Some of us, it's, it's enough to think about fighting. Some of us are just trying to stand in life. I'm just trying to stand. Are you standing strong today? There's enough trouble in this world To make any of us fall on any given day. And Paul knows that. Uh, But Paul knows something else. And he knows something on top of that. I would even say he knows something behind that. Paul knows there is an enemy who seeks to make you and I fall. Uh, You're not just living in a troubled world, you're living in a war. And to keep yourself from falling, you will need to fight if you're going to stand. And there's no conscientious objectors. There's no one who could sit it out. If you're joined to Christ and you're following Him and standing with Him, He has employed you to fight. J.C. Ryle said this to his congregation in the 1800s in England. He said this about spiritual warfare even back then. Quote, This warfare, I am aware, is a thing of which many know nothing. Talk to them about it, and they're ready to set you down as a madman, an enthusiast, or a fool. And yet, it is as real and true as any war the world has ever seen. It has its hand to hand conflicts and its wounds. It has its watchings and fatigues. It has its sieges and assaults. It has its victories and its defeats. Above all, it has consequences which are awful, tremendous, and most peculiar. In earthly warfare, the consequences to nations are often temporary and remediable. In spiritual warfare... It is very different. Of that warfare, the consequences, when the fight is over, are unchangeable and eternal. End quote. With that in mind, I want to set before our hearts uh, today that the reality of this fight that you and I are employed in to stand. And as we look in Ephesians 6, there are three things about this fight in our passage I want to consider. People have divided this different ways. I see a threefold division about this fight. Number one, we're going to look at the call to fight. Two, the enemy to fight. Three, the means to fight. The call to fight, the enemy to fight, the means to fight. Now let's consider each as we delve into the passage. I'm going to start with the call to fight. Look at verse Verses 10 and 11. We're going to join them together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That finally statement can be called the final charge in the book of Ephesians. And I'm not going to summarize the whole book, but any reader who knows it knows that it's rich with both doctrinal and practical truth for the church. It contains the blessings that the church has in Christ and the ways we practically live it out in our new identity in Christ. And in light of those things, Paul is summarizing this book, he's concluding this book by telling you and I, you need to be strong. You're not yet home free in glory. As you go on with this Christian identity, you're going to be in a war. And it's going to require strength. And this alone uh, implies there are things in this life to weaken you. And you need strength outside of yourself. You need strength from the Lord. The strength of His might. And really, throughout the epistle of Ephesians, this this theme, if you're looking for it, appears over and over. The great power that is ours in Christ. The power that was in the resurrection. The power that comes through the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul mentions being strengthened by Him in the inner man. And so this is an important way to introduce the call to fight. Because we need to know at the outset and throughout the struggle... We depend entirely upon the Lord. We're prone to rely upon ourselves and our own strength and our own resolve. And we sort of think we have it together in this life. And we have our own gifts and our own resources. But, but even these are from God. And even those are not enough. He wants us to consciously and deliberately rely on the Lord's might from day to day. And having established that our strength is to be in the Lord, He goes on to an imperative that we're to put on the whole armor of God. And this is the call to fight. There's a few details we need to take note of that often get missed, even in this familiar passage. Uh, Note for one thing in that imperative, you're responsible to take up this armor. It is a duty you have that you can even neglect. The assumption is that any victory won't happen on its own. Uh, The New Testament does not teach a passive autopilot kind of Christianity. A victory requires your effort in the war. And if not, there are casualties. You as a Christian are on the battlefield and if you do nothing, you can be spiritually injured. You can bring disgrace upon the reputation of Christ and his church. You can have lifelong scars. Even worse, your lack of attention to the spiritual fight can even hurt others. It's a real war. I want you to note another detail about that imperative, and that is Paul's stated goal for the church. I mentioned it already, but I I want to take note of it again. Uh, Take note of the fact that the goal here is not merely to fight, but to stand. And he's going to repeat it a few times. To stand strong. It says here in this verse that you would be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Not merely to fight the devil, to stand against the devil. He'll say it again in verse 13, which we'll see that that the goal is to withstand in the evil day. And then to emphasize it again. And having done all, to stand firm. And as if he didn't say it enough, verse 14, he says, Stand, therefore, before even getting to the armor to be put on. I never really realized until I really looked at this passage how often Paul says, stand. Oh, how many of us are just trying to stand. The idea of standing is central to the analogy we're looking at. And there's really two senses in which we're to take the objective of standing. In one ultimate sense, it can communicate the idea that those who fight will prove that they belong to the side of Christ. In other words, in a final sense, the New Testament does teach from time to time um, the metaphor of of standing and falling to communicate um, those who are faithful in being genuinely saved... And those who are apostates who fall away. That's one way that standing and falling is used in Scripture. But there's another sense, probably more in mind here, for standing. And it is to communicate the day-to-day, up-and-down experience of our sanctification. You could just look at your own Christian life and see that you're not always quite standing even the Ephesian Church, years later in Revelation, when, church, when Jesus addresses them, they lose their first love, and He says, "Remember where you, how you have fallen." Assuming they had taken a fall, even as believers, believers can backslide. And if you don't just look at your own experience, you can look at the testimony of Scripture itself. There are saints throughout Scripture who have times they are up and times where they fall. High points and personal falls. And Paul's burden in this call to fight is that you and I would make full use of the spiritual resources in the fight and have that strong stance, that consistency in your Christian life. You and I each have a post in the battlefield where the Lord has assigned us, and we need to think about that place in which we stand. It's by the Lord's providence He has assigned us there. With particular ministries and particular assignments that He's given us. So maybe you could personalize this and think about where you stand. We all have our spot on the battlefield and we will need to fight there. It may be in the workplace some of the time. It may be in the home most of the time. Where do you stand Question from earlier, how goes your standing in the battle? Are we standing strong in the strength of his might or trusting in ourselves? And maybe some of us here are, are, can admit that we've been apathetic lately in the fight. That perhaps we're not quite standing. We're, we're on the ground and we need the Lord to lift us back up and put us in his work. Each of us has a unique post to stand strong in the fight. And this leads from the call to the threat that is to come. Having given the call to fight, we transition next to the enemy to fight. You need to stand first, but then comes the enemy. Paul specifically hopes the church stands against the schemes of the devil. Uh, Satan is not a foe to underestimate. I think sometimes we hear about him so often, and we know the victory over Satan, we could lose a sense of really how powerful he is. He is more powerful than you and I left to ourselves. He's been studying humanity for thousands of years. Uh, He knows just the right schemes to make every kind of individual fall. And that word schemes, I found out, is really a Greek word that's called methodias. It's where we get the word methods. Satan has his methods. And the idea is he has just the right methods for every single type of individual. Uh, People from every class of society, every season of life. He's got a complete playbook. And you're a fool if you think, well, if I just get to this place in life or this position or if I was in this person's circumstances, I would not fall. But Satan's got a method for every single position. As one pastor put it, even if you skip town to escape the war, he's got his agents waiting for you there. And that really leads to a next point in this enemy. Um, We're going to go over the resources against him in a few verses from now. But it's important to note, according to Paul, that we're not just thinking about Satan when we think about the schemes against us. He could have left it at Satan. But verse 12 is interesting. Paul actually kind of gives a little peek behind the curtain of the world stage. And what he wants you and I to see is that there is another kingdom scheming against us. Look at verse 12. Look carefully at the multi level aspects of this kingdom. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's one of the most detailed descriptions. Of the kingdom of Satan. And it's really a fascinating verse. We almost just want to know more. How does that even work? And to be perfectly honest, we're kind of left in the dark a little bit. I don't know exactly how the hierarchy works in the kingdom of Satan, how it works from day to day and hour to hour. But we know that um, Satan is not left to himself. It's important to keep this in mind, because if he had only said Satan, we would think, well, he's at only one place in one time. Satan is not omnipresent. He's confined to one place as just as Hitler was in World War II. He can't be scheming against everyone all at once. We need to not give him that much credit. Sometimes Christians will will casually just say things like, well, Satan was tempting me earlier. It's like, really? Satan? The Satan? Uh, Not likely. Uh, Paul reminds readers that this warfare is not just Christ's kingdom against one foe, Satan, but it is a kingdom against Satan's kingdom. He wants us to know what we're up against. And so he he sort of lifts the veil ever so slightly, and he reveals that there's this massive demonic superstructure by which Satan operates his scheming agenda. Again, we don't know exactly how it all works, uh, but it's important to understand a few things from this. It's large, it seems to be multi-leveled, and it's very organized, I don't know how you think about spiritual warfare. Some tend to think that perhaps demons are just going around the world and it's just sort of just wherever they find a a place to give chaos, that's what they do, and that there's no organization. They're just kind of running amok and and just attacking at random. But that's actually not the reality being described in Scripture. Uh, There's complex organization. There's even what seems to be a chain of command, It's a developed kingdom. Satan has thought this through. And Paul starts with what he calls the rulers. Let's just look at a few of these. The rulers. And the idea here is that these are demon rulers over other demons. And they're sort of acting like rulers do. Uh, they, They make decisions. They mobilize, and they commission, and they dispatch, like generals. It's not just Satan. There's many who are making this world system work the way it does. The next category is authorities. This communicates rank and possibly even jurisdictions. And again, we don't totally know how that would work. Um, it may be that these demons have tremendous authority over different realms in this world. Uh, probably some over entire nations. Perhaps others over regions or cities. Maybe even households. Uh, it could be, as with Satan, that some are, have authority over cosmic powers, over nature, and earthly conditions like weather or even sickness. But we see instances of that in Scripture. Again, we don't totally know. We see only glimpses. But one thing that is clear is these rulers and these authorities do have restraints from God because if they didn't, they would be terrorizing and destroying the whole planet. They only can operate to the extent that God permits, and they're under his sovereign leash. Or as, I like how Luther puts it. Satan is the devil, but he's God's devil. And then we see next, the last level, we see those called um, the cosmic powers. I'm sorry, it's not the last one, second to last. Cosmic powers, sometimes translated world forces. Uh, this can possibly communicate uh, demons who have sway over other major powers in this world. Uh, perhaps governments in the world system. Other institutions like uh, education, media, culture. It says over this present darkness. And uh, to me, that just communicates when we look at this world and we see the spiritual darkness and the moral decay um, these are not just humans who are operating this evil agenda we see all the time. They have sway over leaders. First John 5:19 says, "The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's so pervasive and sweeping and evil influence, and, and Satan's not alone. And lastly, he, he gets to what he calls the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I think this is the one that more touches you and I. These other ones are making decisions that kind of go from the top down. These are the ones who are the demonic soldiers themselves probably. The forces. The ones who are causing and instigating temptation and people falling into sin. The ones you and I might com- come in contact with the ones doing the dirty work. And they're, they're ones who are forces of evil. Forces of evil. And it's a reminder that the, the vilest and most depraved forms of immorality that we see in this world don't just spring from the imagination of the human heart. But there is something behind the scenes. These engineers these demonic minds are often creating and inventors of these evil things. They sow evil thoughts and imaginations, They're evil in false belief systems in the world. I think Paul uses in Corinthians the phrase "doctrines of demons." They think these things up. They they stir division in churches and in the world. And when you look at society, and just when you think things could never get even worse than this, more twisted and perverse, these demons, if given the permission, will push it further. They're masters in carrying out the force of evil and the methods of the devil. Now, back from this big kingdom of darkness picture to you and I, Paul, in effect, is saying you have no idea what you're up against if you're deciding to go through this Christian life alone or if you're going to be the lone ranger Christian. Do you even realize what we're up against in this war? These forces are powerful. They're organized. They know how to scheme and make you fall and destroy the souls of men. So I hope that as we get this big picture of this massive, uh, systematic kingdom of darkness, uh, that we're aware of how foolish it is when we're not strong in the Lord and relying on ourselves. We're going to fall if we're not alert. We're going to be susceptible to sin every moment if we're not relying on Him. To use history as an example, I was trying to think of wars that might compare. It, it would not be like what the British were like in the American Revolution. You, you think about these guys coming in these obvious red coats and in this sort of line infantry formation, like line by line in rows, easy to target. That, that's, that's not the way this other army is functioning. If you were to compare this spiritual warfare to a war, I would think it would be more like Vietnam, like it, it, The territory is, is unfamiliar and difficult. There's deception and stealth. There's random ambushes. There's traps. That's what we're up against. And we need the Lord and His resources. And even as I give that example, I, I am aware that even that falls short because Paul says here, we do not wrestle against Flesh and blood. In other words, even the most crafty, detailed war doesn't compare to what these forces are capable of. It's important to note why he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, really for a few reasons. For one thing, it reminds us who we're ultimately fighting. Uh, These are forces behind the scenes of human forces. And when, we're, when that's locked in, it changes the way we sort of interact with others. That there's other forces at work. It's true that we have human enemies in this world. Uh, but it's crucial that we delineate the difference between those enemies and this enemy. Because it's a completely different disposition we're supposed to have. We may make enemies in this world due to the gospel, But our call from Christ is to love our enemies and to pray for them and to try to reach them with the gospel. There are still elect and others who God is gathering from those enemies. We are not called to love and pray and reach the demons. Theirs is pure opposition. So we don't wrestle with flesh and blood here. It also reminds us that our kingdom is not merely advanced by means of human resources. We don't go around using carnal means to advance the kingdom of Christ. We're not starting revolutions against governments and using the physical sword, actual weapons against others. But as Jesus told Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world. We ultimately fight a spiritual battle in a spiritual enemy and we must employ the spiritual means that he's given us to employ to engage them and this is really what paul is getting at having given the call to fight and revealing this enemy to fight it becomes crucial to understand the means to fight how will you stand against such an enemy he uses the familiar analogy of put on the armor. You're not invincible, but the armor of God is invincible. In fact, it uses allusions to past Old Testament references to the Messiah. This is God's armor. This is the armor you need. Look at verse 13. Therefore, in light of this enemy... Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Now, as we look at this verse and the ones to follow about the armor, uh, I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to go through a, a diagram on the screen and sort of look at each piece and, and give the historical background in Rome and. That's helpful and it's fascinating, and it, it's just been done a lot. Um, what I'm actually going to be doing is looking at how all of them go together, and my objective will be to provide a more practical perspective for how these really relate and work in the Christian life. Like, what is he really getting at in our application? In other words, we need to get to the nitty-gritty of what this actually looks like in your life. Because there's a pitfall that comes with analogies and metaphors. They're helpful, but only so much as they point to the reality. There's a downside to metaphors and analogies, and that's that you get a picture in your head that's abstract, but really it's not what your life actually looks like. You're not actually putting on armor. Not even invisibly. When you think about your warfare as you go from here, don't think of of swinging a sword and getting a shield. That's, That's the analogy. What does it actually look like in your life? I would say that it looks like persevering in practicing your beliefs and Christian virtues. That's the fight. And it always doesn't really look like a fight. There's many metaphors in Scripture used for just struggling through the Christian life and persevering, being a farmer, being an athlete, and being a soldier. So note in verse 13 and earlier on, it's mentioned really holistically. This is the whole armor of God. And so we're really not meant to sort of compartmentalize these things, like sometimes I'll use the sword and sometimes I need the shield. The idea is you really need the whole armor of God if you're to live a thriving, spirit-filled Christian life. You need it all. It's all laid out for you to take up. It says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, notice it says all, to stand firm. This again ties back to what I was saying earlier. There's really two senses to look at this. There's an ultimate sense in which the evil day is speaking of persevering in the faith. And some have looked at evil day as referring to not a specific day, but really just overcoming the evils in this life and proving that we ultimately didn't fall away. That's one way to look at this. Uh, More in mind though, I think, is There is an immediate day-to-day sense that evil day has a meaning. I think it's more fitting to view the evil day as those strategic times in your life when you are most vulnerable to attack. I think this is why he gave us a picture of this big kingdom of darkness and the schemes. Because those schemes are not just every moment. They also have timing to them. Remember that our enemy is systematic in his planning. And there are some days you are more vulnerable to fall than others. I think we see this in our experience. You can look at your life and see that there are certain days you are more vulnerable to fall than others. You see this again in the saints in Scripture. There were some days where David was strong and apparently succeeding in the Lord's work. There were other days, like the day where he was walking on a roof, and he encounters a very peculiar setup for temptation and falls. The disciple Peter has his strong moments in the ministry of Christ. At other times, it seems like he just got struck and he falls. Even one time, Jesus literally says, Get behind me, Satan. Even Jesus was tempted systematically. At the end of his temptations, you remember in the wilderness, it says the devil left him waiting until an opportune time. An opportune time. Implying our enemy has timing. He'll flee, but he's waiting for that moment to come back. I think we all have these opportune times that the enemy attacks us. These are our evil days. It might be a day we're tired. It might be a day that we haven't been in the Word. Or or maybe we're out of fellowship. It might be a day that we're alone. It might be a day we face a great trial. The days may vary. Sinclair Ferguson, who I've just... I've just been eating up his material just lately. He's got so much rich material. If you can stand a a Scottish accent, a really good material on the Christian life. Sinclair Ferguson made an interesting insight about this particular thing, evil days. And he says there are likely three things to be true about these evil days that the enemy schemes against you. Three things that concur in the evil day. One, a greater desire to sin. Two, greater temptation to sin. Three, greater opportunity to sin. Desire to sin. Temptation to sin. Opportunity to sin. When those three come together, there's more of a chance for you to fall. There are days you may have temptation to sin, And desire to sin, but not really the opportunity to sin. Or, there's days there are opportunities to sin, but perhaps you've been abiding in the Lord and you don't have as strong a desire to sin. Have you ever encountered times where you're stronger in your walk with the Lord and you don't really yield to a particular temptation that presents itself? And maybe you think to yourself, man... if." that was presented to me last week, I would have surely fallen. We need to be vigilant about the opportunities we have to sin and the desire to sin because when those two are together, that's when the enemy finds his opportune time to tempt. We need to be strong and regularly employing the means of spiritual warfare. Because there are days our enemy is prowling like a lion to devour and will make us fall. So what I want to do is is briefly go over the means of our fighting and and what it looks like. And the analogy here is, is putting on armor. If we're going to stand from day to day, we need to put on this armor. Our enemy is greater than we can imagine. We just said that. Uh, But we have the strength provided from the Lord. And even the great enemy, even Satan, who's been studying humanity for thousands of years, he cannot withstand these resources. So we need to be all in on whatever the Lord has to stand in the evil day. It's the armor of God. Let's look at them in their progression and how they relate in application. Number one, in the means of fighting and remaining standing, It begins, in summary, with truthful sincerity and obedience to the Lord's commands. Maybe that surprises you because of its simplicity. Uh, Truthful sincerity and obedience to the Lord's commands. They go together. Look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now again, in the day-to-day, just stripped of the metaphor here, this is just sincere obedience. It's a reminder that we shouldn't overcomplicate our Christian practice. We don't engage in forms of mysticism and asceticism and legalism. And there's been some weird ways that people have proposed um, dealing with spiritual warfare, like binding demons and naming them and claiming territory and... Paul doesn't get into any of that. I like this. Paul just says, keep it simple and go to the basics, the basics of your calling. Uh, Don't be a hypocrite and live righteously. To flesh these out a little bit, the the belt of truth has been explained a a few different ways. Um, One of the better translations is actually uh, truthfulness. Truthfulness. We're not talking about the external body of objective truth like God's word. That's going to come a little later when we get to the sword, so he wouldn't use it twice. Uh, Really what's being represented here is the idea of getting serious in sincerity in your standing strong and doing the Lord's work. Uh, Remove all hypocrisy. If you're going to do the Lord's work in battle, you have to have a pure heart Purified of selfish ambition, forsaking any preserved false motives and secret sins. Psalm 51, the most popular penitential psalm, says this in verse 6 You desire truth in the inward parts. That's really where any application must begin. You must not have an outward form of righteousness and a double-mindedness about you. You need to be broken and contrite and serious about serving the Lord from the heart. If you don't, no matter what you put on after the belt of truth, you will fall. All the armor falls off without the belt. And this sincerity produces heartfelt righteousness, pictured here as a breastplate. Now this too has been explained a couple different ways. Uh, Some have wondered if it's the objective of imputed righteousness that He gives us in uh, justification. There's a righteousness that He declares us with when we put our faith in Christ. Uh, Because this is talking about our day-to-day living experience, most commentators, reliable ones, that seem to think this is actually the righteousness he works in our sanctification, that if you're to engage the devil, engage the enemy in the schemes, you need to be living righteously." It's akin to Romans 6:13, which says, "Present your members, the members of your body, as instruments of righteousness." It's denying the flesh and saying yes to what the Lord requires. And that begins with sincerity and it manifests itself in our actions. And when we come before God in sincerity and by His Spirit apply what He requires of us, it has a way of protecting us from the enemy's schemes. That's when we're abiding. And Paul continues his exhortation in verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This must be an important part of the armor. Because if the goal here is to stand firm, we would expect that what dons the feet would be very specially significant. Because the feet is what really falls. And that's why it is a fitting place that we see the gospel. The gospel keeps us nailed to the ground. And it's foundational to all our standing. And specifically it says here, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now once again, this is symbolic language, we're going to expect different interpretations from commentators. Um, There have been some who commonly use this verse in support of evangelism. And so the readiness there is is about um, being ready to preach the gospel with with any opportunity that presents itself. And I think there's truth to that. And certainly there's a sense in which in our warfare we're advancing yard by yard and we are seeking to, to flip the tables over in the enemy's face. Although that's a good thought and certainly taught in Scripture, I tend to hold, along with other commentators, this is not quite what is in mind with readiness for the gospel of peace. Uh, Viewing this as readiness to evangelize doesn't quite fit the analogy for personal warfare. One such commentator, uh, John MacArthur, might have heard of him. He makes this comment about the verse. Paul is not talking about preaching or teaching, but about fighting spiritual battles. He's not talking about traveling with the feet, but standing firm. His subject is not evangelizing the lost, but fighting the devil. I I think these are strong points, especially the one about how this is not about traveling and bringing the good news. It's about staying in place in a conflict. So so what does it mean to stand with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace? Well, I think the readiness has to do with what he's been saying here. Ready for battle. Ready for the evil day. That's what we're being called to stand for. And what keeps us ready is the gospel of peace. Remember that the the permeating idea here is that this is about being strengthened to stand and withstand attack. And the idea of withstanding in the evil day, back in verse 13, has the idea of keeping your your feet firmly placed. You have to resist uh, stepping back or retreating. In that evil day, When the enemy comes in full force against you, it is your feet that need to have the firmest grip on your post. And what is the one thing that can keep you ready to be firm and unshaken in the evil day? It is the gospel of peace. Why the gospel of peace? Why does he even mention of peace? Many have made connections here that because in times of battle and in times of attack, there is no greater morale to the Christian soldier than to remember whose side they are on. Because of the person and work of Christ in the Gospel, you have peace with God. Therefore, He is for you. And when you remember that and your feet are planted on that peace with God... And you have the precious truth of the gospel constantly treasured and rehearsed in your heart. It will keep your soul at peace even in the evil day. It will keep you firm because the gospel doesn't change. In the dark days of England, uh, during the Blitz, uh, when bombs were sort of raining down on buildings... um, people were often filled with discouragement and fear in society. And it was at these times when people felt defeated that Winston Churchill would would come on the radio in a broadcast speaking to the nation. He would do this off and on. And it's been said that when he would go on one of his broadcasts, uh, the whole nation would be talking about it and there would be a, a sense of morale again and people would begin taking heart again. I think that's the picture here. This is really what the Lord does for us through the Gospel. It it speaks peace to our hearts. Hebrews 16.19 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It keeps us in place. We turn now to the final verses and, and these final three applications. Final three pieces of the armor. And notice these, these ones that we've mentioned are already put on, and they're worn all the time, having put on the breastplates, having put on the shoes. Look at verses 16 and 17. This is what you take next. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you have here three more items crucial to victory in spiritual warfare. And remember that all of these go together, they all go together and they're interrelated. And to get beyond the abstract metaphor to actual practice in your life, the bottom line is this. These pieces speak to our minds to trust in the Lord based upon what He has said and promised. Trust in the Lord based on what He has said and promised. Notice it always begins in the mind. That's where really advancement happens in our Christian life. That's that's where it all begins. It, It goes from the mind and moves to the affections. And it goes to our actions and our will. It doesn't start with the emotions. It, it starts with truth. And that's really what it boils down to. It always begins with a, as a work of the spirit in the mind. Because the mind is the faculty where progress proceeds from. And it makes sense that this is where our enemy wages war. Again, I don't know what it looks like. I imagine demons kind of whispering in our in our minds. Or I don't know how they sow these thoughts, but it's the spiritual realm, and we don't understand how our spirit interacts with that. But it does. And it happens in the mind. And the enemy will sow all kinds of evil thoughts into your heart. And these are referred to in our passage as the fiery darts of the evil one. And these are like a flaming arrows. And what we glean from this is that these are probably evil thoughts and ideas because what protects us from them is faith. Faith. We can make all guesses about what the darts are. Uh, temptations. I think if it's faith protecting us, doubts, fears, anxieties, and all sorts of lies. All sorts of lies and half-truths entering our mind. Different perceptions about how we think things are going. Constantly put into us. Flaming darts. And the, very, the enemy is very good about getting in our head and getting us to look away from God and His goodness and His sovereign providence and His wisdom. He's very good at getting us to focus what pertains to us and what's owed to us. Wait a minute, Well, what about me? What seems pleasing to us? And he, He plants those thoughts on us and our flesh latches onto it. And this must be resisted by faith. Faith in our Father. Paul says these darts are coming. You need faith. And faith requires content to go with it. Think about the purpose of a shield, which in this case would have been really a, a Roman shield. Is was the size of someone's body. It was like holding a door. And these flaming arrows are coming in different directions to damage all these pieces of the armor. And so faith is really what protects us in all these areas. All these different applications can be distorted if we don't have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you have faith and a basic trust in God, you can extinguish these darts. And the idea is that thought comes, and instead of focusing on yourself and getting in your head, you look to the Lord and His promises And that thought just dissipates. Why was I thinking that? That didn't come from the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying it's always that simple. We wrestle with our thoughts. We need faith. And this ties to the next form of protection. Also a vital area of the mind. And it's the head which contains a helmet. Look at the helmet. It's called the helmet of salvation. And just to cut to the chase and not make all these guesses, um, I don't want to get too into it, but this has been best interpreted by people, not as salvation itself, like he's telling the Ephesians, and you need to get saved. That doesn't really flow. Uh, they are saved. He told them they're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The whole letter addresses them as believers. It's not about getting salvation. But more likely, this has in mind the mindset that has the assurance of salvation. And what he's implicitly warning about is another tactic that Scripture teaches about with regard to our enemy. And that is not just getting us to fall into sin, but accusing us after we sin. The enemy is called an accuser, accusing the saints, using guilt against us. And that's one of Satan's main tasks. Uh, just keep us wallowing. You did this again. You fell again. You, you need to not consider yourself one of the, on the Lord's side. Are you on the Lord's side? And these accusations mount. And we wallow. And when we're in that state, we're ineffective in the battle. And Paul says, if you're going to be all in You have to know you're saved. You have to know what you have in Christ. The remedy is that you live in such a way and you know the gospel in such a way that you're continually assured in the salvation your Savior purchased for you. At the end of Romans, this great book about the gospel, the the final exhortation is that we be strengthened by the gospel. The gospel is not one thing we leave behind and then move on to better things. It it sustains us every day. And Revelation 12, which gives, pictures Satan as um, the accuser of the brethren, it says that he's overcome by the blood of the Lamb. That's part of our warfare. I would recommend to you. um, and I, I'm almost losing the, the t- exact title to it, but a great sermon you could look up by Charles Spurgeon, it's in written form, of course, it is called um, Something to the Effect of Using the Blood of Christ um, Against Satan. A great sermon about how we use assurance in our warfare. If you Google a combination of those words, it'll probably pop up. I mean, that's really where we are at. We're saved. We're on the Lord's side. Much more can be said about that, but I want to move on to the climax here. Really, the climax of the armor, of course, is the weapon that goes in our hands. If a soldier had all these things, a shield and a great armor, it doesn't have a weapon. It's going to be a very interesting picture and to fight, you need the weapon. And the weapon here is called the sword of the Spirit, and he makes it clear what this is. It is The Word of God. The Scriptures. And really, if you think about it, think about the whole story of Scripture, this is where the whole spiritual conflict began. It began in the garden when God's words to Adam and Eve had doubt cast upon it and were twisted. Did God really say And it is God's Word, firmly believed and held on to, that can resist the enemy and cause him to retreat. This is where our our first parents in the garden failed. If we take God's Word and take Him at His Word and know God's Word, we can um, expose the lies of the enemy. In the end, faith and assurance, they both need a basis for truth. And this is the word. And it's here pictured as a sword, or really it would be like a dagger that was kept like a a last resort. And it it implies that there's close hand-to-hand combat, almost like wrestling. And the soldier would use it to mortally wound the enemy. You're going to be in the enemy's face. You need this dagger. You need... The word. And what's interesting about it is that it can be used defensively, but it's the one thing here that doesn't just protect, but is used offensively. The idea is that you cut through all lies and temptations. And this implies an application for you and I. You have to know the word, you have to be in the scriptures. You have to know and master the Bible, or even better, the Bible needs to master you. We need to be sanctified by the Word. When we know the Word and live by the Word and are filled with the Spirit, because it's the sword of the Spirit, we will know how to use it in the fight, even in the evil day. And when your evil day comes, or your evil days, you're going to need the precious truths Of God's Word. The best example we can refer to for this is is the Lord Jesus Himself. Uh, When He was offered all three temptations from the devil, His tactic was always to reply, It is written. It is written. And He quoted Scripture and, and resisted the enemy, and the enemy couldn't go against that. On to the next temptation until he had to flee. You and I need to be grounded in the Scriptures. And we need to refer to it with faith and assurance when we're attacked. Because the deceptions of the enemy are no match for it. It is a double-edged sword given to us, and it's living and active, and it pierces through. All of these that we've mentioned, these applications that come together, are, are... Essential to keeping us standing in the good fight. We've seen that we're called to fight. We've seen the enemy to fight. And we've been given the means to fight. And all of this must be sourced once again where we began that we're standing strong in the Lord, because it is his armor, it is the strength of his might. And as I went through all these applications and these virtues and practices, I hope you noticed one critical grace in the Christian life that was missing in this. We had practical obedience and assurance. We had faith. We had the word. One critical one that was missing is prayer. Where's prayer in all this? And although we're ending here, Paul does not end here. The following verses, which we're not covering today, tell us that all of this taking up of armor and fighting and standing is joined with prayer. The idea is is as you have faith, you're praying to the God for faith. As you're needing assurance, you you rehearse the gospel, but you're praying to the Lord for this. As you're seeking to obey, uh, as you want a sincere heart and truth, you're, you're coming to God Throughout the way, that prayer is not added in addition to all this. It actually modifies all of this. By means of prayer, we access strength from the Lord in all these areas because it is in prayer that we depend mostly upon him and not ourselves. And because prayer is such a big topic and it's such a, a great, in, important component of this, I'm actually going to save the verses on prayer for the next time I teach. And I want to continue this passage and look at how prayer connects to this standing in spiritual warfare. But for now, I'm going to close. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've employed us to fight. We were once enemies. We don't belong here in your ranks. We don't belong in the... The, among the troops who are mobilized, we were once fighting against You. Uh, but You broke us. And, and You saved us and You changed us. You enlisted us. We want to be faithful. We want to obey Your call. We want to know our enemy. But Lord, we want to know You and defeat that enemy and, and stand strong. Lord, would You do that with our church? Would you help us to stand strong against the schemes of the enemy? Would you make us strong in your power and might? We look to you on no other basis than the person and work of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.